I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source as Tony Blair answers the Chilcot verdict against him in London. It's the official and scathing review 13 years later of the then Prime Minister's contribution to George W. Bush's American-led war on Iraq. I accept full responsibility, without exception and without excuse. The intelligence assessments made at the time of going to war turned out to be wrong. The aftermath turned out to be more hostile, protracted and bloody than ever we imagined. And a nation whose people we wanted to set free and secure from the evil of Saddam became instead victim to sectarian terrorism. For all of this, I express more sorrow, regret, and apology than you may ever know or can believe. What the news resurfaces for us is a pretty frank exchange recently with a journalistic adventurer, Sidney Blumenthal, a friend of mine for 40 years or so, who had everything to do with Tony Blair's key role in U.S. politics and policy, including the glory days on the way to war when Tony Blair was heralded as the most popular English politician in America since Winston Churchill, a better explainer of Bush's war than Bush himself. Blair is now being held to account at home for the worst blunder in British statecraft since the empire fell. Sid Blumenthal had met me to gab about his new biography of Abraham Lincoln, but then we digressed to speak about Tony Blair. I think of Tony Blair as a tragedy. That's how I think of it. I was involved early on with Blair. Um, I met Blair, it's a long story, when he first came to Washington with Gordon Brown, the great rivals, and team I don't know if they were a team of rivals. But they, <laughs> and uh, I met them together at the British Embassy. They'd come over trying to learn the lessons of Bill Clinton right after his election. And the political attaché at the embassy, Jonathan Powell, invited me to lunch with them so we could talk about the Clinton campaign. Mm. He hadn't really begun his presidency yet. They wanted to learn the lessons to see what they could do. They were sort of the bright young backbenchers of the Labor Party. And uh, I went over to London and befriended Blair. I convinced him to come over. He was the shadow home secretary. I held a dinner for him and introduced him to uh, then um, Speaker of the House, Tom Foley, and other people around. I wrote a piece for the New Yorker, a long profile about him. And then I introduced him to Bill Clinton. Hmm. And... um, he came over as the leader of the Labor Party. It was my wife and I, Jackie's 20th wedding anniversary. We've now been married 40 years, so this was 20 <laughs> years ago. In our house in Washington, we had a reception for Tony Blair. And uh, I invited Hillary. And uh, Hillary came, and it was the first time they met. And the next day he met President Clinton, and it was the beginning. They had very shared politics, and it was very very productive relationship. And I was in the White House then, and a great part of my responsibilities involved that relationship. We held all kinds of meetings discussing policy issues, both here and there of all sorts, and how to, how to advance those policies. Then the election of 2000 happened. I remembered 
we were at a G7 meeting. I don't know if it was called a G8 then. In Cologne, Germany, in 2000. And uh, I went to see Tony. Uh, we sat on top of his hotel and we drank beer, German beer. And he gave me advice for Al Gore in his campaign. Uh, it was kind of populist advice. Gore was running a kind of half clueless campaign, in my view. Hmm. And Blair thought so too. Then, in my view, Gore was elected president, but never became president. Hmm. The votes were not counted in Florida. He won the popular vote, and the Supreme Court, by one vote, thank you, Antonin Scalia, ruled that under the equal treatment under the law provision of the uh, of the Civil War amendments that were to grant full rights to all of our citizens, the votes of African Americans in Florida were not to be counted. So George W. Bush became president, and Tony Blair had to deal with something else. And Bush and his entourage were hell-bent, especially after 9-11, on a war with Iraq. But the issue of attacking Saddam Hussein, as we know, rose earlier than that. And I'd heard it from Jonathan Powell, who would call me after their meetings with Bush. Like, what is this about? And to a degree, Blair was cornered. And I do know from some of the people I knew in the CIA that some of the intelligence was withheld from him, which he did not know. And the Bush people constantly manipulated intelligence about... Did we know even then that it was being cooked to his taste? Yes. To Tony's taste. This is what he will understand. It wasn't specifically cooked for him. It was just cooked. And he was willing to go forward and to be the strong ally. Um, I don't know if you want to go into the whole history of the Iraq War. He was desperate for the second resolution in order to get the UN inspectors in to look for the weapons of mass destruction. He wanted full diplomacy. He wanted the broadest coalition and so on. And my view is he was... He wound up enabling this, and he was used, and that's the tragedy. And in the end, he was ruined. In many ways, his reputation was ruined in Britain because of this war, and the consequences for the Labor Party continue to this day. Mm. But he's not the only one. Of course, he's not the only one, but he is the only one who, with a snap of his fingers and a very short speech, could have stopped that war by simply saying, it's an imperialist adventure, We had our own in Iraq in the 20s. We know that part of the world. We burned. We're so much better out of there. Don't do it. And it wouldn't have been done, Sidney. Well, um, all I can say is it's easy to say now. That's all I can say about that. Well, it was easy to see then, I must say. You call it a tragedy. I just wish the tragedy had happened to more of the perpetrators in this country. Nobody in this country has paid quite... Well, the Bush family is now finally paying it, but the, the, the price of the disgrace of that war has just blown right by the Rumsfelds and the Cheneys of our society, and it's an astonishment. It, for me, it was a break point in that I always thought of the British press, British politics broadly as a kind of critical eye in the same language on what we're up to, we're the sort of successor empire, and a cautionary, instructive <laughs> Dutch uncle, English uncle role with us, and it just collapsed at that moment. Well, I think the irony is that Blair thought that it would solidify 
their role, and it performed the reverse. Do you see the tragedy close up? Is it sort of broken on the mind and spirit of Tony Blair, do you think? Or where is he now? I was so outraged as a Yale alum that Rick Levin, the president of Yale, brought him to Calhoun College, of all places, to to lecture for a season on God. And I thought, God wants to ask Tony some questions. Um, someone someday should do a series of Shakespearean-like plays hmm. involving the history of the Labor Party. There's a Peter Morgan films about the relationship between Tony and Gordon Brown. Hmm. You know, Gordon's his own tragedy. You know, a Heathcliff-like figure. Hmm. You know, under the shadow of Tony and feeling that he's a greater intellect and can see things greater and yet lacking in his political touch. Hmm. It's Tony's lightness, actually, that gets him through that Gordon doesn't have. I mean, this is very Shakespearean stuff. And then it devolves to the Miliband brothers, um, in which one brother destroys the more capable older brother, uh, and the younger brother then still playing out the Brown-Blair tragedy, then ascends as the one who himself is destroyed. Now Mm. the Labor Party has Jeremy Corbyn, who is not quite a Bernie Sanders figure. I think he's a lesser figure than Bernie Sanders, or he's a different kind of figure than Bernie Sanders. For me, American politics feels that it's still stuck and wandering in a kind of post-Iraq confusion about how we get past that awful memory. I still give Donald Trump a lot of credit for saying uh, what nobody else in American politics would. I mean, looking Jeb Bush in the eye and saying, your brother lied about that war. Also, in other moments, saying, can you think of what $5 trillion could have done in the rebuilding of this country? Hillary would never have said that, but people loved it. And Jeb ended up with 3% or something. Well, when you say people loved it, people in the Republican primary universe loved it. Yeah, but if they love it there, they'd love it even more. I'm I'm not denying its appeal, although... What's interesting to me about the Republican primaries is, among other things, many things are interesting about it, are that there were two forces defeated in the Republican primaries. One was the Republican Party, Mm -hmm. and the other was the conservative movement, which has spent now a project of uh, several generations to take over the Republican Party. The Republican Party was represented by Jeb Bush. That was the Republican Party all of his donors, all of his apparatus, the whole infrastructure was gathered around Jeb Bush. The the rest were minor characters. And then the conservative movement was organized around Ted Cruz. And both of those fell. We're now in in a vacuum and left with kind of an empty stage where, you know, where Trump walks on and meets with Paul Ryan. And what, what are they talking about? And Ryan is horrified and doesn't know what to do or think. That's the big story in the paper, the crash of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. But just as important, it seems to me, the Trump campaign smashed the imperial pretense that we could go anywhere, the Bush legacy, that we licked the Vietnam syndrome, as H.W. said, or that we will have a coalition of the willing to go and hit anywhere in the world that we like. That has been exploded finally, it seems to me, in the public conversation, and it's about time. 
The Democrats haven't quite done it yet. But it seems to me that's the job ahead. Well, I don't know what Trump's saying. Trump's saying that we will destroy all of our enemies, we'll, dis- we'll kill ISIS, we'll get rid of it, but how we're well, going to do this? he says that, we, but he, the he subtle, quite. clearer message to me is that this era of intervention anywhere we choose, especially the Middle East, is over. That we've created an awful mess at unimaginable price and that we're not going to do it again. You think that that's Trump's message? I think it's one of his messages. It's his message on on good days that makes sense to me. (laughs) And there are lots of others. He may not know quite that that's his message. I think he... he... When he says it was based on a lie, they, they bent the intelligence, they tricked us into war, he's speaking my mind. And that $5 trillion would have been mighty handy in rebuilding the infrastructure of America. Well, I think that um, you have more coherently put together that part of his platform than he has done so far. Well, I often feel that. Yeah. Just give us a line, I mean, not a prediction, because nobody's predictions count, but where are we at? My feeling is uh, that I don't think people feel this is an incremental election. Just thinking historically, Eric Severide, who no one remembers today. I do. A great pundit, as it were, greater than a pundit, a great writer, in his day, held forth in 1960 and said there was very little difference between Kennedy and Nixon. Of course, there was. This is two middle managers competing and so on. That's not this kind of election. And no matter what you think of these characters, this is a very decisive election that's going to go in very uh, divergent ways, 180 degrees, whoever wins. And I think that uh, the public's going to understand that when they're driven to a choice. The thing about an American contest is you're driven to a choice. And that's what's going to happen for people. And um, to some degree, I'm not saying scales fall from people's eyes. What I'm saying is excuses fall from people in making their decisions. And whatever decisions they have to make will be made if they're going to vote. And they will and there'll be a decision. Sidney Bobethal, it's such a pleasure to see you and gab as we used to in the 70s. I feel like we're just clearing our throats, Chris. <laughs> Let's keep doing it. Sidney, and the book is fantastic. Thank you so much. Sidney Blumenthal's new book is the first of a four-volume biography of Abraham Lincoln, A Self-Made Man. I'm Christopher Leiden. Leave your comments, please, at our website, radioopensource.org. And thanks for being part of the open source conversation.